Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining our exploration at the intersection of business, politics, culture, and demographics. Our topic today, winning in Washington. We've just concluded a quadrennial election where candidates contested for the presidency, the House, Senate, and a range of local offices. People are intrigued at the outcome of the election, what happened, why, what produced the result that we see unfolding before us. And of course, elections are important, but we find the more interesting question to be what happens after elections. That is, how do interests arrive in Washington, compete, and win, and in some cases, lose? So today's episode is going to explore how the best organizations, how the best companies, how the best enterprises contest the arena that is Washington and have their ideas, their issues, their positions, their interests prevail. I am joined today by my colleagues, Johnny Fluger, Barron's chief strategist, and Jeremy Furchgott, a director. Johnny and Jeremy play a fundamental role in our firm's work, with Johnny leading our competition practice, examining antitrust, as well as a range of other areas. Most of all, Johnny is a critical element of all of our clients' strategy decisions in thinking about how they can compete and win in Washington, D.C. Jeremy, who serves as director, uh, not only helps manage so much of the firm's internal projects and external projects, but also is the innovator who developed influencer analytics, our way of identifying and assessing the influence of key policymakers and others on Washington, D.C. in driving policy consensus. Uh, they're my trusted colleagues. I value all their contributions and grateful to have you with us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you very much. In this episode, we explore the five questions that we believe are most central to our topic today, winning in Washington. First, what is Washington? Second, who are the competitors? Third, what does it mean to win? Fourth, what do we see across organizations as the formula for victory? And fifth, how do companies apply those lessons, apply those best practices to achieve lasting victory? To begin, I think it's important to examine specifically what we mean by winning in Washington. And so the first thing I think is to define uh, this term Washington, which although perhaps obvious on the surface, has a much more a complex uh, dynamic than is readily appreciated. It's, it's not a coincidence, of course, that a vast majority, something like 92% of the Fortune 100 have corporate offices in Washington, D.C., and that reflects the very profound but often underappreciated growth of the federal government. Two of the most important indicators, looking at the 50-year period from about 1969 through 2019, the pages in the Federal Register, which is the compendium of regulations uh, that govern the economy produced by Washington, D.C., and the, the, the entanglement of bureaucracies and agencies, uh, grew by 255% during that approximately 50-year period. And federal outlays, that is federal spending in shorthand, grew by 248%. So companies increasingly are in Washington, D.C., not because they enjoy what is often joked as the northern charm and southern efficiency, but because they have to be here. And so we think about, first of all, how to win in Washington. Let's explore a little bit what we mean by the term Washington, which is much more than a geographic destination. In fact, it represents a community and ecosystem uh, with a vast array of interests and features. Johnny, why don't you offer our audience a sense of what we mean when we talk about Washington? Jonathan, I think one of the gravest mistakes that uh, that companies make is 
assuming that Washington is identical to elected officials. Um, from our work, we see that elected officials operate within an information environment and and uh, and I should I should say unelected uh, policymakers as well uh, operate within an information environment and that that information environment is disproportionately shaped by um, a class of opinion leaders uh, whom we call super influencers. Usually in a, in, a, in a given topic area that we've explored, there have been no more than 20 to 30 uh, individuals who, who shape the views of, of, uh, of Joel Washington on a particular uh, subject. Just last week, conducted an analysis of um, influencers in the, in the orbit of uh, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden, uh, who, who, as we record this, is, is uh, you know, competing uh, for, the, uh, for the, the presidency. And we identified 10 individuals who disproportionately influence uh, the people around uh, former Vice President Biden. What's, what's interesting is that uh, a number of those individuals whom we identified uh, are not by, by conventional accounts, you know, working in, in think tanks or policy organizations. For example, one of the, one of the individuals we, we identified is Ernie Tedeschi who works at the sell side firm uh, Evercore ISI. Now he, uh, based on his biography, was an Obama administration official previously, but a, a conventional narrative about Washington would say that it matters much more what a Brookings institution uh, says about economic policy than someone who works at a for-profit entity. And so what, what we find is that businesses, uh, among, other, among other institutions, have an ability to shape the, the expectations, the norms related to a, a particular policy area. Uh, so Washington isn't just official Washington, it is the people who influence official Washington. And Johnny, talk for a moment about the sociological dimension of Washington. Sure. I, I think that Washington is is frequently construed as primarily an ideological place. You have liberals and you have your conservatives, you have your Democrats and your Republicans. But I think what we find is that Washington is really a tribal place. What matters less is those labels and what matters more are the niches and sub-communities and, and subgroups that fall within those labels. And we've seen this during you know the Trump uh, administration amid debates between different GOP factions. There is a distinct uh, national conservative tribe as opposed to Republican establishment ways of thinking as it is to, you know, uh, pro progressive ways of thinking. There are a lot of internecine disputes that from a 30,000 foot uh, perspective, from a conventional, you know, TV pundit perspective. And then there is also the aspect of the people who live uh, in Washington uh, no matter what their ideological or tribal affiliation is, the the, the Washington MSA uh, has really grown and grown and grown. And one of our favorite anecdotes is that well, less than the last decade, Washington's been home to a Paul Stewart store, a famous menswear shop 
that has its flagship in, in Manhattan in New York City. That kind of, uh, although there were preppy menswear shops in in the District of Columbia previously, including maybe most famously Bridges of Georgetown, the arrival of Paul Stewart said something about the, the folks who live in this town, namely that they've gotten wealthier. They do not see you know, government service as sacrificing economic prosperity. And I think that uh, that plays into the, the policy decisions that are that are being uh, made here. It's a, it's a much wealthier, uh, more sophisticated uh, place than it was uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And Johnny, your point is not simply anecdotal. In fact, if we look at median household income, over the last 30 years, it has increased by 11% for the nation overall, but by 63% uh, in Washington, D.C. So what we see correlating with the increase in the pages of the Federal Register I mentioned earlier, as well as the increase, the dramatic increase in in federal outlays, uh, is dramatically rising median household income in Washington, D.C., along with uh, the rise of of the corporate presence in Washington, D.C. In addition, in terms of the sociological aspect, which is, I think, very, very important, um, most po- folks imagine that Washington, D.C. is composed primarily of the elected officials who get elected from around the country and come here uh, to do the nation's business, whether that's in the executive branch or the legislative branch. But as you point out, Johnny, uh, the real Washington is quite different. And in fact, those elected officials, in some ways, are a very, very small proportion of what is we'll call it uh, the, the broader sense of Washington. There's a trope, there's, I think, a, a, a cliche that Washington is bitterly divided. In fact, there's very little division in Washington. And the best evidence of that is if you look at the presidential elections of 2016 and 2020, uh, one candidate on average received 95% of the vote in Washington, D.C. So there really isn't much division at all in what I would call this broader sense of Washington. Uh, there's a very strong consensus that I think reflects some of the deeper trends, Johnny, you've explored. And I would say, Jonathan, as well, one, you know, one thing that um, is hard to quantify, but for those who've been here over the last couple decades is uh, demonstrably true, uh, which is that the, the prosperity of the Washington area was enhanced, not set back by the uh, the Great Recession, global financial crisis in 2008-9. I think that that was not true of many other parts of the country. And I, I do think that part of the, the populist backlash against Washington that we've been increasingly been seeing on both sides of the aisle and that, that has been accelerating does have something to do with the, the sense that the acceleration in, uh, in prosperity in the Washington area has been you know, far greater than anywhere else in the country. So Johnny, just to summarize our best answer to this question, what is Washington? How would you distill your definition? Washington is the, the people, the ideas, the rituals, the habits that uh, impact um, federal policymaking. 
very helpful. And I think as part of that is to appreciate, uh, and I think this is implicit in your in your definition, Johnny, is the social networks that really do bind so many of the uh, most successful people in Washington. Uh, it, it's very funny at times when a journalist will be on television interviewing a strategist of either party or a policy expert. Uh, what's of course, almost always unsaid is often those people have their children in the same schools, they frequent the same clubs, they have the same farmer's market. Uh, so it's not an, it's not an, an objective interaction where there's a journalist, uh, you know, uh, really pressing an individual for answers. It's, it's part of a series of interactions, 90% plus of which are never revealed or known to the viewer sitting in Chicago or St. Louis or Austin or San Diego. So I think that's a dimension of Washington that everyone knows in their own lives that those social interactions really do impact our behavior and the way we treat and interact with others. But it's not often thought of as applying to Washington in the broader sense, Johnny, that you've, uh, that you've defined it. So very helpful. Thank you. Turning to our second question, who are the competitors? Jeremy, why don't you offer a quick sketch of how you see the competitive landscape and how our audience should understand the identity of the competitors in Washington, D.C. Sure. Thank you, Jonathan. And I think there's a broad view that the competitors are government versus the private sector in some way. And what we see is that, in fact, the landscape is much more complex. Often, companies are competing against one another and are forging alliances with various factions of the Washington, D.C. tribal system. Part of this dynamic is a response to the growth in federal regulation. What's happened in many sectors is that government has has regulated to such an extent that companies' business models in many ways are just defined by the parameters that government has set. And I'll take the auto sector as an example. If you look at the types of new vehicles that are for sale on different dealerships lots, of course, there are different colors, different brands, but you'll notice that the shapes are pretty similar. Why? Because the federal government has largely defined what vehicles automakers are able to build and sell. So all midsize sedans have pretty much the same dimensions and characteristics. SUVs similarly, uh, the same shapes um, uh, are narrow, are, are fairly narrow constraints that automakers need to follow. Why does that matter politically? What that means is that in the actual commercial competitive space, companies have very little opportunity to compete against one another because they're all narrowly following the same rules. In contrast, in Washington, because Washington has this multiplicity of rival you know, sub-factions and sub-tribes that may have uh, slightly different views on different regulatory issues that could have significant financial consequences for companies, companies are actually incentivized to try to tweak those regulations in small ways, not acting in competition against government, but allying themselves with certain elements of Washington, D.C. 
in competition against other companies. And so what we see is that uh, companies are understandably responding to the incentives that have been set. Companies have been using Washington, D.C. as a competitive arena. And the more uh, the more growth in the regulatory system, the more companies are turning to Washington, D.C. as this arena for competition. So, Jeremy, your point here is, a, I think, a really important one, and I would summarize it as follows, and I'd like you to comment on my summary and, and expand upon it, which is that because companies increasingly can't differentiate their products or services as a result of government regulation, they go to Washington as their point of differentiation. And so that's a way of saying that Washington is in fact less regulated than the economy. Talk about that for a second. One way to think about this is in terms of transparency. And uh, in, in many industries, it's fairly well known which products are coming through the product development pipeline. Was in the aircraft industry, the auto industry, energy sector. There are dozens, hundreds, in certain cases, thousands of investment analysts who are carefully looking at what various companies are doing and who have a pretty good sense of that commercial activity. In contrast, Washington still has a fair amount of opacity despite lobbying disclosures, um, despite uh, many corporations' voluntary disclosures of uh, funding of think tanks and, and other types of activity in DC, for many companies, they're able to they're able to gain the element of surprise in Washington that they're not able to achieve in the regular commercial arena. And I think, Jeremy, going back to your initial answer to the question, you know, who, who is competing, who are the competitors, uh, the reason why this stealth, why, why, this, why this discretion is so important is because so often the issue debates that the public sees coming out of Washington really are the function of private sector interests clashing through the political system. And so it's a form of business competition through government. It appears often on the surface to be partisan or ideological competition, but in fact, to your point, it's really the manifestation of business-to-business -business competition. Absolutely. And I would, I would add that often these business-to-business -business competitive matters um, are nowhere close to ideological in a standard left-right framework. Often each side of the business competition uh, that's playing out will be able to recruit allies both on the left and on the right. And so it ends up being that competition in D.C. often is not a matter of Republican versus Democrat or, or conservative versus liberals, often on many, on many industry matters, it's a matter of a, a coalition of both left of center and right of center supporters that each side is able to muster. And the, the challenge really is, is who can 
who can muster the the most compelling, creative, and powerful of those coalitions. Johnny, over the past four years, I think one of the more remarkable developments, to Jeremy's point, has been the emergence on the right of a strongly anti-corporate, anti-business element. I think prior to Donald Trump, although there were important exceptions, by and large, the center-right, the conservative community was not just not simply pro-competition, but I would say firmly pro-business. I think as a result of events at the early part of this century, uh, the Iraq War, the Great Recession, uh, other factors, this community of anti-corporate, pro-competition voices really has risen in prominence on the right and increasingly finds common cause uh, with allies on the left. Talk a little bit about this, and while that we do see for certain uh, business being able to recruit allies on the right and left, and I think Jeremy's point is exactly right, this this phenomenon s- since 2016 is, is something a little bit new in the modern political era. Why don't you just describe it a little bit for the audience and talk about its implications? I think where we're seeing what you describe most prominently is in the ongoing debate over big tech or the fangs. For for decades, I, I think conservative um, orthodoxy on uh, antitrust has been that that um, in, intervention, uh, antitrust enforcement is uh, is problematic. It's a uh, intrusion into uh, a free market, and over the last few years. I think uh, influenced by the hipster antitrust movement on the left and uh, and folks like uh, Lena Khan, Matt Stoller, who is in our analysis of the uh, uh, Biden influencers, uh, a number of voices on the right have really begun to reevaluate um, that that orthodoxy. And we saw this a number of weeks ago when the the uh, House Antitrust Subcommittee put out its uh, investigation into competition in digital markets, uh, the so-called uh, Cicciolini Report or Big Tech Report. More than a year ago, this subcommittee launched an investigation into digital markets. Our two objectives have been to document competition problems in the digital economy and to evaluate whether the current antitrust framework is able to properly address them. We work closely with all members of the subcommittee on both sides of the aisle who have taken this work seriously and studied these issues carefully. As my colleague, Congressman Ken Buck, recently commented, and I quote, this is the most bipartisan effort that I've been involved with in five and a half years of Congress, end quote. That report represented Democratic staff, but there was a a second report that was uh, offered by Congressman Ken Buck of uh, Colorado and uh, three other members of the committee. What uh, Congressman Buck uh, indicated or indicates in that report is that he uh, is aligned with uh, Democrats on the anti-competitive threats posed by the platform monopolies. He agrees with more or less the diagnosis of the problem uh, in the economy. And he agrees with some of their solutions, but he's not there yet in terms of all of their proposed uh, solutions. I think what we see in the case of Congressman Buck is an organic evolution, not not a forced pivot, uh, you know, tacking in favor of uh, political wins. 
this issue of antitrust enforcement is uh, is one example where we see um, a kind of populist mashup of uh, what had been um, sort of policy orthodoxy. And Johnny, I think it'd be helpful if you dissected or, or dis, uh, distinguished the philosophical shift from what possibly could be a reaction of competitors to the fangs who don't enjoy the largely unregulated markets or sectors within which the fangs operate. Certainly, I think, Jonathan, in the case of all of the companies addressed in the in the Ciccolini report, you know, there has been press coverage and there are clear citations in the report of competitors to those companies meeting with uh, co- committee staff. And um, in, the, in the case of, uh, of some of the f- uh, fangs who've been under competition scrutiny for quite a while, there, there have been competitors who are known to have been quite active in seeking to elevate scrutiny. And Jeremy, just returning to you as we conclude this part of the conversation on the question of you know, who are the competitors. So as, as you encapsulate the real competitors and how those competitors interact with various forces in Washington, what should our audience most understand? So I'd say the rule of thumb is to think about competition is between companies, not between political parties or or. Uh, government versus the private sector. I would say within the private sector, a good rule of thumb is to uh, consider the Fortune 100 as being the most active competitors. Fortune 100 through 500 or so, um, not all of those companies will have uh, major presences in DC. Many of them will defer to industry peers. Uh, but some of them will be quite active. And once you get below the Fortune 500, very few um, of those more medium-sized and and slightly smaller companies are active competitors. So the competitive landscape is actually fairly clearly defined in our experience. I think that with respect to competition between companies, the outcomes tend to be, at least in the short term, much more equivocal when you are dealing with big companies that have uh, a large presence in Washington that have a lot of, uh, you know, consumer awareness by people in Washington. I would add that where we have seen the fusionist populist coalition succeed in uh, bringing bringing a company to heel, so to speak, has been uh, where that company is not well known, does not have a large reputation, and does not have a large presence in Washington. So when members of Congress or regulators on both the right and left um, scrutinize that company, it does not have the wherewithal to really withstand the attack in the way that a Fortune 100 company can. Moving to our third question, what does it mean to win? How should companies define and think about a state of victory? It's harder than it sounds. Uh, very often in the most prominent issue debates before Congress or before the executive branch, uh, when businesses are competing through the arena of government, they don't give out trophies. It's not always clear who are the winners, who are the losers. Uh, it's not clear that victory comes with what particular costs. 
when someone loses, it's not clear, is that a short-term defeat or a long-term defeat? So Johnny and Jeremy, uh, how should companies define and think about winning? Jonathan, I think one important criterion for, for companies to consider is to what extent is their objective uh, in a given policy area credible uh, in light of the interests of, of the political system? So, uh, you know, this is a uh, by now cliche example, but the pandemic has really trained a lot of policymakers on um, the the issue of the health of the U.S. manufacturing base, defense industrial base, resiliency. You know, why aren't we better equipped to uh, manufacture pharmaceuticals and PPE here, et cetera, et cetera. So this has been a concern of uh, many people uh, for a long time. Um, Their concerns only really began to accelerate uh, in a a more serious way, uh, uh, in a more tangible way as a result of the pandemic. They could have been identified by companies before the, those voices, um, but but now it's really important if you are a uh, manufacturing company in a, in a in a critical industry to articulate to policymakers that uh, you are going to be manufacturing your critical product at least to some extent here in the United States. That's that's a cliche example, but I think it speaks to uh, what we see, which is that companies that come in and don't think about their uh, their argument and argue for something that's that's not credible end up losing 100% of the time. Johnny, I'll build on your comment by pointing out that often the most effective way to do this is actually not to declare victory, uh, but for the company to point out that it is providing a service to the American people and to the U.S. government. And so to Jonathan's question about what does victory look like, often it's often it's a little bit hard to tell because those who are winning are not, are not necessarily um, loudly proclaiming it. And in fact, they're often most successful uh, by taking a somewhat different approach uh, by showing uh, how they're under stress and how they're essentially performing a public service um, to pursue the types of activity that Johnny described. And if you think about some of the greatest government relations victories of the past half century, I think one could argue they were victories that really did incentivize and ease consumption as the foundation of the American economy. And we think about the policy consensus that had existed for quite some time on free trade, on intellectual property, on the treatment of unearned income, on uh, home ownership, um, um, and, and issues related to around uh, not only buying a home, uh, but then what, all the consumption that is produced when someone makes a decision to buy a home. That that set of that set of developments or that set of trends really does tie together in a very particular view on tax rates of taxation and the things in the society we're going to make hard and that we're going to make easy. And uh, again, many of those things, uh, I would say most of them, produce very positive results and that, that shouldn't be neglected. But at the same time, those were presumptions. Right? Those were intellectual 
decisions or intellectual points of view that prevailed and had tremendous downstream effects. And again, different societies around the world make very different choices on those questions with very, very different outcomes. So very often a victory is not a specific tangible victory that can be tied to a particular piece of rhetoric or advocacy, but it is an intellectual trend that becomes deeply uh, entrenched within the policy consensus, ultimately shapes the policy consensus and produces a series of specific policies that drive the economy uh, in a particular direction. I think to your point, Jonathan, what we see is that companies that, that create an air of inevitability around their desired policy outcome by laying an upstream groundwork, shaping opinion broadly over a prolonged period of time, have the best outcomes in terms of winning. So that, Johnny, brings us to our fourth question, which is, what does the formula for victory in Washington look like? What are the practices, what are the elements of success in Washington in ensuring that a point of view, a perspective, a policy uh, prevails? And as we have observed and worked with many companies that seek to educate, inform, shape lawmakers, regulators and others in this very dynamic, highly competitive atmosphere where their competitors in, in many cases, if not uh, almost all cases, have been extremely active um, in, in trying to secure a, an advantage for themselves or in fact impose a disadvantage uh, on the competitor. Again, there are a few things that, that really rise to the surface as critical to success in Washington. The first, something that we talk about quite a bit within the firm, is moral confidence. Now, it's a bit of an ambiguous term, but it really has a very specific meaning, which is within a company, within an organization, not just at the highest levels, but throughout the leadership and throughout the company, is there a sense that the enterprise is engaged in a positive and worthy mission that supports and advances human flourishing? And those companies that have a deep conviction that their work contributes to human flourishing and they are proud of that work and they view that work as not just aligned with but instrumental to the success of individuals, families, communities in the nation. They have a tremendous advantage in the political system and in the policy conversation. The next element that we find to be fundamental is a company with moral confidence which also has a compelling framework that illustrates, that visualizes, that demonstrates the alignment, the relationship between the private interest and the public interest. So a clear, demonstrable explanation of how their policy desires, right, their policy agenda supports and is consistent with the public good. And it is a common mistake for companies to leap from their moral confidence or from their own self-interest and assume that is what is that what is good for the enterprise is good for the country. And that is an assumption that is risky and should not be made. It needs to be demonstrated with facts, with arguments, with data, uh, qualitatively as well. The third part of the formula that in some ways is the most neglected is the concept of domain awareness. Do companies, do private sector competitors acting through government truly understand what is happening. 
you would think that especially very large organizations would have very high levels of domain awareness. In our experience, that is not the case, that in some ways domain awareness is the most difficult thing to acquire and it requires a constant attention. And so understanding not only who are the decision makers, in some ways that's the easiest part, but who are the influencers, who are the super influencers, what are the trends that are being advanced by those influencers and super influencers, what are the developments within the agencies, within the committees and subcommittees, uh, what are the views of the staff, how do you ascertain not only those views, but the vector, the direction, the momentum of views within an important decision-making body or a community of influencers and super-influencers? Having that domain and awareness is fundamental to ensuring that the moral confidence is expressed through a framework that continues to be relevant to the public interest. And what can happen is a framework can become overwhelmed by changes in super-influencer thinking in a community of influencers and not integrated uh, properly. And so the framework becomes anachronistic and becomes misaligned, uh, you know, again, with the political environment. So having and maintaining that domain awareness is absolutely crucial. The fourth element is what we call the head of state advantage. And the most effective companies have CEOs who think of themselves not simply in a chief executive officer role on behalf or in the service of a private company, but they are in fact acting as a head of state interacting with government. And they embrace the role of being the leader right, of an entity akin to a nation state. And they are the best and most authoritative representative of that entity to the decision makers. And so what we see consistently is the more a CEO operates in relationship to government as a head of state, that correlates very heavily with success in Washington. The fifth and final element is consistency. The best, most effective companies in Washington do not surge their activity in response to a crisis. They have a consistent program of activity over years and in, I think the most impressive cases, decades where senior leadership, this head of state advantage is deployed with moral confidence, expressed through a compelling framework, and that is communicated to decision makers, to influencers, to simple influencers on a regular basis, where there's never more than a month or two or three, where the most senior levels of the company have not been present, have not acted in some way to communicate and to advance the view of the company. And so again, this idea of consistency, consistency in thinking, consistency in policy development, consistency in relationship building, consistency in convening, all of those things feed into a regular series of activity that ensures that over time, a case can be built. I think, Jonathan, there's a component to moral confidence where a successful company, a company that's morally confident, will really underscore to policymakers that it is expressing its its core values and in a sense is positioned to to meet kind of core civilizational needs in a I would say almost mythic way. 
archetypal way that were it not for this company, a core need of, of society at this point of industrial development would not be met. I don't mean uh, a core need as a direct individual happiness, but, but certainly a core need in terms of one of the things that probably feeds into happiness, for example, mobility. The, the most successful companies we've seen have really positioned themselves to appeal to those mythic themes. One other attribute of companies that are successful is an ability to really appreciate the perspective of the subgroups on the political uh, chessboard, the uh, tribes as we called them before. The more a company has an ability to understand, this is what this group of people think on this issue, and not not dismiss those views out of hand, we, we see a, a basis for success. Unfortunately, we see you know, many instances where executives at a, at a company are still unintentionally bringing to bear their partisan affiliation. If they were a former Democratic staffer or Republican staffer, they're still conceiving of the world from that perspective. But where they can say, this is how and this is why this group of Democrats sees the issue in this way, and this is how and this is why this group of Republicans sees the issue uh, in this way, they are able to then think through okay, what is, what is the uh, appropriate response? What is the argument uh, that I can make? What are the changes that I can make that will both achieve my company's business objectives and also produce a favorable reputation among officials? And Johnny, perhaps another way to describe that pattern is the difference between advocacy and empathy too often we see individuals trying to persuade uh, other parties in Washington, D.C., whereas the most successful companies often aren't trying to change anybody's mind. They're trying to show that their interest already aligns with whoever it is who they're trying to work with. So disassociating from an advocacy mindset is often important to success. So that leads us to the fifth and final question of the program, which is how do companies apply the formula of success to achieve victory on specific issues or priorities? And we find that there are clear answers to that question. The first is serious investment in strategy development. And as part of that is maintaining when executing advocacy, when executing public affairs activity, tactical neutrality. Let me talk for a second about uh, both of those concepts. The term strategy is used incessantly in Washington. In fact, during the George W. Bush administration, uh, the term strategery came to be known. And I think strategy is such a cliche that it's you know, regularly mocked. But what's so remarkable about Washington is how little real strategy development actually takes place. I think strategy is the most overused term as well as being the most uh, rarely pursued activity. And so companies that really think through what is strategy, how does strategy apply to us, what is going to be the overarching concept that governs how we pursue our objectives with limited resources, that process is very commonly skipped in favor of pursuing tactical programs. 
Washington, D.C. is organized in the advocacy community, in the public affairs industry, by tactical sector, by tactical practice. And so nobody in Washington, D.C., or I should say very few people in Washington, D.C., get paid for strategy. They get paid for tactics. They get paid for conducting polls. They get paid for making ads. They get paid for arranging lobbying meetings. They get paid for coalition outreach. And so in that process, the profit generator is tactics. The cost center is strategy. And that's why so much of the guidance received by companies really overemphasized as tactics and undervalues strategy or actually underweight strategy. In addition, to know that vendors have some degree of tactical neutrality where their compensation is not tied to the type of spending or the amount of spending is very important, not only to ensuring that strategy development takes place, but that the tactics that are assigned to that strategy or that help implement that strategy are not distorted by financial models. So those are sort of two important principles of strategy investment and tactical neutrality. The third is what we call deep learning, which is do a set of decision makers within a company truly understand the very things we talked about today, the relevant parts of Washington that will help shape the decisions important to the company? Who are the individuals part of those communities? What are those individuals' priorities, points of view? and interests, and how do they intersect with the arguments in the position of the company? And then what are the larger trends that form with those other factors, domain awareness, that define the landscape within, within which a company is operating? The, the fourth and final practical practice that we view as essential to success in Washington is having advisors committed to critical empathy. That is serving as both champions and constructive critics of the company, its strengths, its weaknesses, and its challenges. As we close today's episode, Jeremy and Johnny, just offer a final thought on the thing that business leaders should understand most about Washington, but is often the least appreciated. Business leaders should understand that succeeding in Washington will require their active involvement and will require somewhat of a whole of enterprise approach. Outsourcing their success in Washington to a very small team, siloed, separated from the rest of the company, rarely leads to success. So I would encapsulate our advice as uh, an, an appeal for uh, business leaders to recognize the opportunity and for them to deploy their resources and capabilities in ways that their competitors will find difficult to replicate. To Jeremy's point, the business executives who can come to Washington and and uh, exude confidence in their enterprise and its mission are those uh, who are going to win. Those are the, the, the executives who are going to win in the political debate, and they're going to be the ones whose companies ultimately win and uh, outflank and, and outperform their competitors. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Johnny Fluger and Jeremy Furchgott for joining me today for the Political Risk Brief. It's been a terrific episode. I want to thank our audience for joining us today. I want to thank Diana Engelman for making these podcasts possible. 
I want to thank our producer, Noah, for his excellent work. And I want to thank Danielle Weinrich for her outstanding research in support of today's discussion. Thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to having you listen to a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. Thank you.